I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Final Fantasy VII. discussion from the get-go but this is one of those scenarios where I don't consider these spoilers is examination of texture I honestly I theorize that if we were a bit less skittish about spoilers there'd be more media literacy because people would rather than hiding the endings and then going well judge this for yourself and then having idiots doing the ending explained and totally misinterpreting it you've actually got people who do know how to interpret endings explaining it to you from the like just so that you could lean into it the whole way through I don't know just obviously it doesn't work for everything some of these things require surprise that really changes the dimensionality of the story but sometimes if it's gonna throw you for a loop it's actually better to know surprise is not the only point of engaging with a piece and if a piece of media only has surprise... And has to change because somebody guessed the surprise... <laughs> then it's not particularly strong. It's got to have more than just a reveal. Yeah. Anyway. Do you know what? If I'm eating cake, I want to know that cake doesn't have chilli powder in it. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler warning, it does. <laughs> now this one has been an incredibly long time coming. The first numbered Final Fantasy released in the UK. The first PlayStation JRPG I ever played and completed as a teen. The only other one before that being Secret of Mana on the Super Nintendo. The original 1997 Final Fantasy VII is still in the running for my favorite game of all time. And yesterday, after some 26 years of dancing around it, Sharon finally completed the game. The Nintendo Switch version offering the quality of life and experience upgrades to facilitate this sustained engagement, this raptitude, this hard-won victory. So even though I haven't played it outside of Midgar since the Clinton administration, I remember it vividly and I'm going to be asking Sharon all about her experience. And we are here to assure you that this is worth playing today, despite or even because of the emergence of the glossy remake in its three parts. That modern star blockbuster action RPG is itself reactive to its originator, the text of the narrative being in deliberate overt discourse with the source events of the story, playing out like a strange mysterious retread of a path already travelled. Ergo, Actually taking the time to travel that path yourself can only strengthen the experience. 
And now, thanks to the quality of life additions, it actually won't take you anywhere near as long as it would have taken us back in 1997. Sharon was done in record time, as far as I'm concerned. The plot concerns a Blade Runner-style city named Midgar, a giant mechanical pizza run by the Shinra Corporation with Mako reactors at the corner of each slice, sucking up the energy of the planet to convert it to electricity. The middle class go about their day looking up at the towering buildings where the upper class look down on them from their penthouses, and the pizza is supported by struts in an underground foundation crawling with slums where the working class conduct a hard-scrabble existence clinging to the lower rungs, always under threat of homelessness, sickness, and despair. This is actually a really good example of why trickle-down doesn't work, because what little is trickling down, and it's not much, the reactors at the top are just sucking back up again. Put it like this, if one of the upper class people was eating a canapé and then was like, I need to drink some more champagne, and spat the canapé out, it would sail down the entire length of the skyscraper, then down into the slums, and kill whoever it landed on. <laughs> that is trickle-down economics. <laughs> the only thing that trickles down from here is the piss. Jesus. Okay. Grizzly but gripping. A long time ago, thousands of years ago, an alien being named Genova crashed to the planet and her body was recovered by scientists of the Shinra Corporation and her cells were used to help augment their militarized security force named Soldier. Shinra want to extend their grasp across the planet and those people who won't allow them to place reactors in their midst are trampled. You begin the game as Cloud Strife, a mercenary who claims to be nonchalant. Alright, right, you're, nonchalant. you're nonchalant. <laughs> who has been recruited by what Shinra perceive as eco-terrorists to help blow up one of their maker reactors. It's a job, he's being paid for it, and he's out as soon as it's done. As the game goes on, Cloud does in fact stick around. He butts heads with Barrett Wallace, the passionate leader of Avalanche, this group, whilst quietly rekindling his friendship and affection for his childhood friend Tifa Lockhart. Along the way, he falls into the flowerbed of a gentle girl who lives in the slums named Eris. And all the while there is the creeping shadow of someone from their past and future, the Genova-augmented, Masamune-wielding, silver-haired super-soldier, Sephiroth. Over time, as you journey out together, it becomes clear Cloud is not only not who he says he is, but not even who he thinks he is. Cloud is positioned to begin with as a grim badass with a comically oversized chopper, but as layers are stripped away, he turns out to be a scared, unexceptional boy who spent his life aspiring to be like Sephiroth, who slipped into the role of a now dead soldier named Zack, and who does not know what is left once you remove the artifice but who has now surrounded himself unwittingly with genuinely good people who each have their own tragic history and story to work through and who all help one another to grow past these and become better versions of themselves. But that journey is going to be full of danger and heartbreak. Was that a deliberate reference? All heals, because you can have a spell called heal that you attach to a spell called all, and you can all heal everybody. Yes, that was intentional, <laughs> and that was a test, and you passed. <laughs> 
Definitely wasn't a typo. No, sir, you're E-Bob. <laughs> One of the immediate negatives leveled at this game is how old and janky, bulbous and awkward the presentation is. Unlike the ageless, beautiful Super Nintendo sprite work of Final Fantasy VI that I talked to Maya about last time, this was a spearhead in the move to three-dimensional gaming, and it often comes off as being referred to as not pretty as a result, which is manifestly untrue, even though beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The backgrounds are static renders with crude by today's standard polygonal models effectively running around on a photograph. In many ways, Final Fantasy VII has more in common with the original Resident Evil than it does with Final Fantasy V. It is an archaic and abandoned design. But saying it looks ropey and that that's why you can't get into it is like saying you won't watch Casablanca or Some Like It Hot or The Apartment or It's a Wonderful Life because they're all in black and white. They are pieces of their time and what is inside them transcends time. But if you can get a handle on those controls and that presentation, push through the veil of design and technology, you will find one of the deepest and most easy to love adventures ever put to the medium. The presentation of story and characters, the ethos, the astonishing music that is also my favorite video game score, Nobuo Uematsu at his absolute best. All these things combine in a banquet of experience. It is brain protein and soul protein. There is an overwhelming sweetness that abides with you. Sweetness that would be cloying were it not for the opposing tone of foreboding doom. The entire game is predicated around a scrappy bunch of guerrilla activists endeavoring vainly to oppose this vast megalopolis of the Shinra Corporation who are guzzling the lifeblood of the planet in a way that is manifestly killing her. Young people desperately fighting to have a future on this planet as psychopathic corporate greed coldly murders them for being a nuisance is ten times more relevant now than it was at release in 1997. With the masks of capital E evil of late stage capitalism being unthinkable in the cartoonish naive 90s, the information age has left them with nowhere to hide, no propriety. So the narrative shifted to simply attempting to normalize our profitable extinction. That sweetness is thus juxtaposed by fear and an unfathomable sadness, fretted with action and confronting despair with a determination to keep on getting back up again to fight on. Phoenix down. And while Duma Sephiroth, the wounded, betrayed, malevolent ruiner of all things, is placed in philosophical opposition with Eris, who is selfless, calm, wise, fun, considerate, cheeky, and accepting of her tragic place in this, there is a waltz at play here, a cycle of three. Sephiroth is death, a devil, the destruction of the old world, the screaming, rampaging id, a child cursed with the ability to punish mummy for abandoning him. Eris is the superego, the parent who knows their place as a guide. She is the angel, rebirth, the green shoots pushing their way defiantly up through the dead concrete. And Cloud, and by extension the rest of the surviving members of Team Avalanche, are life, the ego tossed and tumbled by the other two aspects. They are us. Their job is to fight for a better world and then to live, to carry on, to find a new balance in a world turned upside down. 
The development of this game was tumultuous. Originally planned for the Nintendo PlayStation, a collaboration with Sony that ultimately ended up fizzling out over disputes over control of the CD format, and after that, with the Ultra 64 now in development, Square were looking back on Final Fantasies 1 through 6, all released on Nintendo consoles, the NES, the SNES, a whole bunch of Game Boy stuff, and still fully intended to get this one onto their next machine. If you owned an N64 and a PlayStation 1 in your day, you'll be able to attest that one of these machines lent itself to massive sprawling JRPGs, and the other one did not, Paper Mario notwithstanding. The constraints of the cartridge and the expense of their manufacture versus the ability to spread a production across, in this case three, and often later four, far less expensive and data-rich CDs meant that while early demo material for the N64 was produced, Squaresoft ultimately went the way of Sony. This led to a trilogy of numbered games, seven, eight, and nine being made on three and four discs all in the same style of polygonal models on increasingly nicer looking pre-rendered backgrounds. All in the same style of polygonal models on pre-rendered backgrounds. All for Sony's first machine. In fact, 10, 11 and 12 were on PS2, 13 was on PS3 and 14 and 15 were on PS4. And while 7, 8, 9 and 12 have been ported to Switch, that does mean that 6 was the last numbered game to launch on a Nintendo machine first and it may in fact be the last. So 7 really did signify the end of one era and the beginning of another. It was the crucible of 2D to 3D. The first five games were all directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi, who stayed on as writer for this and continued as producer from that point. Six on the Super Nintendo was directed by Yoshinori Kitase and Hiroyuki Ito. Kitase directed Final Fantasy VII, which would account in part for why it shares so many themes and feelings with six, and Kitase went on to direct eight and ten, and Ito went on to direct nine and then co-direct twelve. Again, this was the first numbered Final Fantasy released in PAL territories. I know America got Final Fantasies 1, 4, and 6, although they were called 2 and 3, but we didn't get any of them. JRPGs were not, to this point, considered a major source of revenue in the West, despite being major cultural touchstones in Japan for years. And it was again, the blockbuster quality, the bright shining lights, CD quality sound, epic scale, action-packed combat, impressive at the time crude 3D anime style cutscenes, a camera that moved and extraordinary polygonal imagery conjured in a dedicated promotional campaign which Sony got behind hard that sold us Final Fantasy VII collectively, after which point the series was off to the races and has arguably sold every subsequent game based on the memories of the intense emotional reactions to this widespread shared experience. It was the first game I remember just playing and playing until dawn. By a certain point in the story, it was unputdownable. I wore my internal PlayStation laser out. By the time I was on the third disc, I was having to turn my console upside down just to make it work. And it was worth it. <laughs> I still have the same PlayStation, but I had finished it before I met you. Mm. 
but I was like, you've got to play this thing. So what was your experience from that point on? Did you play it before me or? Um, I think I was vaguely aware of it before I met you, but I don't think I'd sat down and played it. My interactions with the PlayStation, the original Sony PlayStation, in the late Or oh, the Nintendo PlayStation. Sorry. <laughs> in the late 90s. By the way, if you look up the, uh, the uh, Sony uh, wiki on the Nintendo PlayStation, there's a lot of talk of the betrayal. <laughs> It's so melodramatic. Mm. Written, um, righted by the fans. <laughs> yes. My console experience prior to this, as I have probably mentioned on, on podcasts before, was a Sega Master System. Mm-hmm. And borrowing... Yes, you've spoken of your Sega Master System. Yes, I'm proud we are of all of that. <laughs> and borrowing a Mega Drive from our neighbours when they went on holiday. Mm. We looked after their hamster and their Mega Drive. But the Mega Drive was also not exactly replete with fantastic JRPGs. Absolutely. But my favourite type of video game... Fantasy Star 4, Shining Force 2... My favourite type of video game up to this point, and this was why I never really got massively into console gaming, was because the the text-based adventure games of the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 were really where it was at for me. Like the Hobbit that you hated and couldn't get out that of it. Oh, God. <laughs> Friggin' nightmare. But that was what really grabbed me. And, and effectively, the way I would sum up the aesthetic of the original version of this game, and I will explain why, for me, the advancements on this don't quite hit the same beat, is... Do so now. What I'm engaging with here is an interactive graphic novel. The fact that the conversation between all the characters is text-based and I can beep through it at my own speed. I am not restricted by the speed and delivery of bad actors, which was often the case once we got into video game characters that talked. A lot of JRPGs nowadays do actually have much of the text in back and forth. They, They call it visual novel style, so you'll get character portraits as they talk. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm getting with Fire Emblem Awakening there you go. at the moment. They will they will exchange little bits of dialogue between them, mm. but the, the dialogue they're saying doesn't really lend anything to the story. It's more so that you can hear their voices, yeah. and then the text in the boxes is what actually tells you But it's happening. portraits with boxes, and Final Fantasy VII is far more cinematic. Like that Absolutely. bit where you're... Uh, trying to get away from the first job and you're in the uh, subway train and like everyone's a bit nervous because they're like they're going to stop the train they're going to start the alarm it's like you're there in the scene rather than just Barrett's face talking to Cloud's face he's like they're going to start the alarm now there is I I know it's polygonal but to my brain everything in this is built of triangles (laughs) so many triangles (laughs) so many triangles all over the place Cloud was just four triangles and yeah (laughs) and that what that does, that simplification of the aesthetic, and obviously you've got the far more detailed cutscenes, but when you're actually in the gameplay, what that provides you with is an interaction on screen which is so far back from the uncanny valley that it actually really helps for me engaging with the the emotional levels of the story because there is no body language in four triangles there is no facial expression that i am being asked to interpret in connection with the things that they're saying interjection they do, they, they do make they them do expressive barrett's kind of, 
little shaking his metal fist and going. I, I take that back. There, there is, is physicality. Body in there is physicality. It's minimal. But it's very simple. It's and very clear. Expressionistic, absolutely. Almost, rather than absolutely. it being uh, a one-to-one. And I love that because it means that from the text, which is, I'm not going to say that the the actual dialogue and text is super complex because it is still relatively simplified it is not i don't know what's a really involved book it is not ulysses by james joyce <laughs> imagine a <laughs> game I wouldn't like that. It if it was i did try to read that in university it didn't happen <laughs> it was like for the, for the and this is i like, just reacted to that as though you said bogey pie bachelor's level degree and they're still saying to us look all you've really got to read is the last chapter that's the bit that's important mm. the book is four inches thick and you don't need three and a half inches you could murder it. someone with it either by clobbering them or making yes, them read you it <laughs> a die of old age and insanity yes and if somebody murdered you by clobbering with it, you with it because you'd made them read it <laughs> that is also your alibi because the judge would look at it and go yeah I understand yeah um, <laughs> Off Ulysses. Come on. Indeed. Anyway, so, but my point being that while the, the dialogue and the story are not exactly uh, complicated in terms of the direct interaction, what they reveal by their very simplicity is incredibly layered and incredibly meaningful. And it's, it's in part because in the spaces between that simple aesthetic and the simplified uh, conversation exchanges and, and the fact that stuff is revealed through through dialogue and through interaction without pages and pages of narration telling you what's going on and explaining everything it fuses with the imagination in a way that lets you fill in all the gaps around that story and it gives the emotions that are coming up in you a, okay I'm going to rephrase this because I, it always bugs me when people do this the emotions that came up in me while I was engaging with it... Even with the low polygon count? Even with the low polygon count. How many emotions is people? David Cage is wrong. You do not get more emotions because you have more polygons. <laughs> um, there is space. There is room around them for those emotions to breathe. So instead of them sort of starting to bubble up to the surface and then immediately being clamped down on with a great big long narrative explanation of what's going on, no, feel it. Just feel it for a moment, and the music is such a huge mm. part of that. Yeah. And this, I think, is the is what like the key thing of that switch to the CD, because on the CD they could get music that you just could not have on earlier consoles. Mm. You could get close by the time they were on the N64, but it was not the same. I'd love to hear a Super Nintendo-style demake, uh, a chip tunes version. I'm sure that it's going to be there. I'll find it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Matsu was talking about how he very deliberately layered the music so that there would be exciting levels to one track but with foreboding underneath and a yeah. little bit of sweetness in there as well so he was he was deliberately evoking experimentally not sure if it would work yeah. conflicting emotional responses we're going to stop saying emotionally but, emotions but that, emotions emotions but that's what it is that's the thing it, it connects in a way that that intellectual rational here's why this should hit you doesn't. Because 
this is not... You can't think your way out of this one, you've got to feel it. Mm. That's the real best line in Jurassic Park. Indeed. The, the world building that Uematsu does with the music as well, it's not just the layers in terms of what each individual track evokes, it's the fact that they are designed and created in such a way that they intersect with each other. You can have piece A of music and piece B of music and they sound completely different, but then later on you'll get a reorchestration of both versions that dovetail in with each other and give you um, a, a different blend of oral colour. Mm. You, you, you Red song, blue song, and later on you're going to get purple, the way that they, they build together. And I'm it's, thinking of the Shinra theme being played at one point during an action sequence, and it's da, 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 yeah. as opposed to the da, da, da. John Williams does that. Yeah, absolutely. You can get bombast and you can get sinister from the same, essentially the same notes but because of the way they're being played it gives you a completely different feel to it and that then does happen get... in six having just gone through all six they there were same composer yeah. he was already there are doing strains that. of some of the tracks in six oh that my feed lord into seven. the opera is at some points almost like this is just eris's theme <laughs> so from that then we can deduce that what you were saying about this being experimental he'd been experimenting with it for some time and so this is really sort of his second round of, of being able to work this kind of stuff. Oh, I mean, he's, like he'd been, he's hit his stride He had now. been composing for the Final Fantasy series since the very beginning. Mm. There's a bit of a step back for five, but four has some amazing music. And they're all fantastic. And he has gone from strength to strength. Mm. But I feel like this, he had hit a golden age for what he could accomplish mm. and had been given the freedom to do that with vast, expansive games. Yeah. Yeah. So effectively then, the, the simple aesthetics of the art style, the simplified but complex story and dialogue and character interaction. Which, I mean, the simplified sounds, you know when people say of Mass Effect 2, they dumbed it down. Getting a story to more people isn't bad, no. especially if the story is important and important, especially if the story is actually, you know, kind of psychologically of use Absolutely. to people. Absolutely. There's, there's a rule of thumb. If you are writing and you want to communicate what you're trying to say to as wide an audience as possible, they say write for a smart eighth grader. Yeah. Because if you write something that you're sat there, well, I mean, you wouldn't even necessarily be thinking this, but if it's aimed at people who've got degrees in whatever language you're communicating in and is incredibly, like, jargonish in terms of the words that you're using that only a select group of the population would know, you cut everyone else off from what you're trying to communicate. As massively accessible as Akira is, when they start going on about amoebas, the average person could be quite forgiven for going, sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And I think, honestly, this is where I think the fact that it was a Japanese game that's then translated into English, by necessity, 
the, the dialogue that we get in English is simplified again. I can't tell you how complicated and complex the Japanese language version is. I don't know. If anybody has played it in Japanese and understands Japanese enough to, to know what I've not level heard of the people is. Usually the complaint for translations is that something is lost, like right. some subtlety well, yeah, is which lost. Is, which is inevitable because different languages prioritise different things. But rarely is there a major theme missed, at least in video games terms. Mm. It, it happens, but say for example the uh, horrendous American adaptation of Nausicaa, Warriors of the Wind, mm. a lot was lost in that with the editor's knife hacking out huge sections of it. Yeah. But as uh, Pluto said, they couldn't take away everything. Indeed. But again, I think the fact that you have the, the art style, the words, the text, and then the music adding this massive layer of complexity to it, but they are all, they feel separate. And so your brain gets to combine them. Sorry, I'm doing it again. My brain got to combine them in a way One's that worked brain. for me. Yeah. And that is very unlike a lot of games as we got more toward the modern era. When you say of them, and I mean you, Alex, hmm. everything is brown. To me... In the PS3 era, that was the case. Absolutely. And that's not just the aesthetic. The words and the dialogue and the chunk 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 music and the, the rattle of the, the machine gun bullets, which is inevitably there in all of them, it all munches together and it makes it impossible for me to pick out anything I actually like from them. Yeah. As we discussed this morning on the uh, Discord, I, I tried uh, playing the PSP version of Crisis Core and I was like, there's a lot of thrash metal in this game. Now, I like thrash metal, it has its place, and there are moments when, uh, like, like, if you get a Black Mages album, which is, uh, uh, we are the Black Mages! Hello, Cleveland! And it's just, it's all metal. That's perfect for if you're in that mood. Mm -hmm. And if it's, you've been playing through most of the game, and then, sort of kicks in, it's like, oh, shit's just got real. Like, you, you give it a sprinkling of metal to really change the tone. But, if you're trying to do and then Metal Fasher, it's made the remake. We're barely going to talk about the remake, and we're not actually going to do full shows on it until it's done. So don't ask. And when I, when the credits roll on part three, then we'll do a remake series. But the actual, if you listen to the soundtrack of the remake, for a start, it's on like fuck it. There's 154 tracks. It's huge. But there's so much combat metal, and it's different. Like they, they, everyone's gone out of their way to get like a different kind of bow, dow, 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 type thing. A lot of variations on um, those who fight on the the battle music. But it's hard to slow them back and forth, emotionally speaking, from soft to hard. It feels like you're falling downstairs, and there's some marshmallows on the stairs. <laughs> It's like, yeah, not the marshmallows are fine, but I'm st ow, that was the corner. It's like that. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's not me necessarily yeah. criticizing the remake, but I, I will definitely, like, you could listen easily to the four disc original soundtrack for Final Fantasy VII yeah. with no problem the whole way through, and it wouldn't really unbalance you. But if you sit and listen to the remake, you go, oh, that was beautiful. And it started in the 2000s when everything got sort of like you know Vincent and his bad attitude like he's got a claw and he's got like a black 
thing and he's a vampire. And they made the Prince of Persia look like Vincent for the second Prince of Persia Sands of Time game. The, the, uh, the, the dark, the warrior within. It, it was all about like bad attitude and chains and things. And then Advent Children came along and there were a lot of, in this um, animated mo anime movie, uh, and Vincent's like, did you all raid my wardrobe while I was gone? Well, for a start, <laughs> we'll maybe we'll do a, an accompanying thing on the movie, but I'll just say here, it was created by people who were skilled at doing cutscenes. And so when you watch the movie, it's nearly two hours of cutscenes back to back. That's not a movie, that's not a narrative. And there's so many thrash metal songs in there. Yeah. They're like... So it actually feels less like Final Fantasy VII and a lot more like Crisis Core where you start the game with Zack being like, yeah, baby, I'm a soldier. I'm going to be first class. And he's like Sonic the Hedgehog. No, he doesn't want to be a first class soldier. He wants to be a hero. <sighs> yeah, I know. Anyway, but it, it seems to run against a lot of the philosophy laid down within this game, which is that it's actually probably not a good idea to want to be Sephiroth. Yes, indeed. And the he may be able to destroy a dragon in one slash, yeah. but uh, he's... Fucked in He's the head. He's a mess. He is a Sephiroth mess. Sephiroth ain't is happy. What he is. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if if you want to destroy the entire planet, yes, it did hurt you. Mm. Whatever it was that they did. It to is you not while uh, not worthwhile saying, by the way, that the super eye patch wolf pointed this out. And is absolutely true. They used in the flashback the narrative of Cloud following in Sephiroth's footsteps to show the massive disparity in power level between them. So Cloud's poking at this dragon and immediately getting wiped out. And Sephiroth's just like, just to illustrate that he is but a lowly worm and is going to have to get good in order to be able to take this guy out. Mm. And they use the, the mechanics of the game to characterize. Yes, absolutely. And just to, to briefly go back to the music, um, they, the fact that the music provides you with um, and this, this ties into the world building, it helps to segment. You've got the battle loop music, which is the same every time, and so you eventually get a feel for the pace of a battle, except when you are in the middle of a really important narrative section that has particular music that go with, goes with it, and this goes both ways. You have battle scenes that then have this incredibly tense, creeping, threatening music behind it, that makes you feel like, shit, this is so much worse than everything I've gone up against before because the music is different and I cannot anticipate that victory yeah. roll at the end. Um, or there's something much bigger than what you've been dealing with so far and so the music is much more bombastic. And again, that gives you a... It's, it's, it sort of still segments it out from your normal standard grinding battle type stuff, but in a different way. And it's like they, the way that they use the music for different locations. So when you're in this particular place, you'll get this theme. And when you're in that particular place, you'll get that theme. And if you're on this vehicle, you get this type of music in the background. Mm. And, it, and all of that just adds to this ability to keep a big sprawling what could very easily become a mess in files that my brain can can process and put together in a way that I can engage with it much better. I, I think it would not be too much of an exaggeration to say it, that it feels like at least Final Fantasy 7 feels like Fellowship of the Ring in terms of suddenly this team of over a hundred, was it over 200 people? Mm. That managed to knock it out of the park 
it has that richness and the, the, the music is testament, Howard Shaw's music, to just how vast this world is. And Oematsu manages to sort of keep the whole thing coherent mm. by, like, connect, like, people attach to this game emotionally. And the reason we keep going on about the music is because if you took that away and you swapped it with music from, say, I don't know, Sword Art Online, it wouldn't be the same. And if it was all, all thrash metal music, there's no way this would have happened. Thrash metal is like a chocobo. It's fine in its right place, but I couldn't eat a whole one. <laughs> I will promise I promise I'll never make you try to eat a whole thrash metal or a chocobo. <laughs> okay. Now, the aesthetic, it's admirable now that I think about it. I don't actually think I've seen any other game have this distinctive a look to it. Mm. It's steampunk, but it's more like diesel punk. Mm. Uh, the, you know, it, it somehow combines uh, motorbikes and leather with uh, like machinery and walking tanks. But there's this kind of almost 80s industrial side to it. You were right to compare it to Blade Runner. Yeah. It's more cheery than Blade, Bur Blade Runner. But, oh, yeah. But, like, Blade Runner amp up the neon. Yeah. I think Blade Runner 2049. Very specifically, when you see Eris in the original game, as the picture descends past a My Bloody Valentine poster for their album Loveless, um, it, it does have that kind of, a new work life awaits you at the off-world colonies. Like, if you give Shinra a little bit more time, they'll be using the rocket tech to get to other worlds and encouraging people to go there so they can fuck up those worlds as well and, and just extract as much as they possibly can. And Jim Steph Sterling pointed out the absurdity of uh, Squaresoft getting into the NFT business and doing Final Fantasy VII NFTs. There's an irony. Like you can get a who, like it's a who that Avalanche are on the uh, are being marketed to, or were. I don't know if it's dead yet. The uh, the NFT market, but uh, it's it was galling. But it's it's very much a game that takes Barrett's side of being angry that this is happening. Yeah. And Cloud, to begin with, isn't angry enough. And Tifa is very uh, determined and... Uh, what would be the word? She's not exactly gentle, mild, restrained. It's not even really that. She saves her violence for when it's needed. Mm. Yeah. She doesn't argue with people or punch them. And... It's possible that one of the reasons Tifa is such a... Huh, I keep hearing the fucking word waifu throughout. Whenever I go on looking for... Like it's, it's whenever... As soon as I started looking into anime stuff and JRPG stuff, I'm just, you know, watching a thing and then someone will say, and this game is fantastic because of all the waifus. Mm. Editor's note, this is actually the second time I've used the term JRPG in this show. I actually don't use that term anymore, since Child of Light is made by Ubisoft Montreal, and that is very much a turn-based, traditional RPG, whereas Elden Ring is made by FromSoft, and very much a Western action RPG. So I tend to just default to RPG now. Quite apart from the fact that many people in the uh, Japanese gaming industry 
consider the term JRPG to be rather derogatory, but I use it in this context because of the Western culture surrounding quote-unquote JRPGs. A character like Tifa will get rank very highly on that list because she's not aggressive, because she's just there to be your toy, whereas like the reality of Tifa is she can be hurt and she's definitely a person who respects people's boundaries and she's compassionate. Again, I'm only going to lightly mention the remake, but I love the chemistry she and Eris have in the remake. There, there is a, a real a lack of that way too often leaned upon women have to compete with each other. Mm, yeah, there's, there's a... And again, this is not quite the right word. There is a neutrality to Tifa in the sense that when the people she's surrounded by are passionate, angry, frustrated, she manages to be relatively non-reactive. Derek Smalls. Yeah. She's the bassist. <laughs> she's the warm water. I always like to think of myself as the lukewarm water. <laughs> yeah. But that means that she can feel like a place of safety. Yeah when there's a lack of that going around. Oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a consistency to her, and particularly when you factor in that she is ostensibly somebody that Cloud has known for a very long time. There's a and reason. she is yeah. connected to this hometown that he has in his head, that, um, that that makes her a stable place to stand when the world is falling apart. There's a reason why her music sounds like waking up on a sunny day. Yeah. It doesn't have the sadness of Eris's theme. Mm. She's not steeped in the same tragedy. That doesn't mean that Tifa doesn't feel an immense amount of pain, but she was immediately someone I wanted to have close. Mm. Yeah. And obviously when you're playing shy but romantically charged games in your late teens, especially in the 90s, it's you can you well, there, there is a very real documented process of attachment to characters and that happens most of all within uh, RPG type games if you get if you're gonna get really into a story most of the time it's going to be with someone you spend an extreme amount of time with who goes through an arc and that doesn't tend to happen in things like plat 3d platformers so often it, you, do, it does you happen you can get massively attached to samus aaron if mm. you want to but you might have to explain to me how there's a lot less interaction <laughs> in that regard and, yeah. and there's also a, a massive difference between an action game that pauses has a sequence where characters talk to each other and then the action resumes mm. the rpg elements in, it means different things in different cultures. In, in, in American and Western RPGs, there was much more of a, uh, an emphasis on choice and dialogue where you can choose how to talk to people uh, in order to get information out of them or in order to f recruit them or facilitate achieving something to just get quests. The Fallout Mass Effect model. And there's still moments in this game where it's like, Ares is like, would you like a flower? And you can either just go dot, dot, dot. I'm nonchalant, <laughs> or buy one, and then she'll ask you, do you like Tifa, and Tifa will say, do you like Ares, and you actually have to respond, and different things do happen in little ways as a result. There is so much detail in this game. Mm, there is. But I think the, the larger element of impact, at least for me, was very similar to what I said about the larger element of impact 
of Mass Effect on me, mm. which is that it's not so much what happens in the game if you make choice A over choice B, mm. it's what that choice does to you that is the, the, the important part. It's which is what everyone who got really angry about the end of Mass Effect seemed to be missing, that all of those choices did have meaning because they were meaningful to you yeah. and that the characters themselves when you made those choices. Ultimately, the it had to end and you got this ending, this ending, or this ending, and oh, it was just different colours. That's not... That's, that's too subtle for us. We want to specifically die heroes, but also go on living so we can be at our own funeral. Yeah, but, but wait, just give yourself a moment. Examine how you internalised that story. Not following you. <laughs> I, this, it feels like one of the greatest oversights they made was not having that ending, but that keeping the Citadel material, the whole party side of it, out of the main game. Mm. That should totally have been there because that is effectively your goodbye. Mm. And one of the things, again, I'm, I'm gonna mention it just a little bit. One of the things I really like about the remake is being able to go back to these characters and spend time with them in what feels like a, the word realistic is not accurate here. Um, a more directly intimate way than the abstraction of yeah. the polygons and the text boxes. I, I will say that having played it 23 years ago up to a certain point and then having dipped into it very, very lightly since the alternate versions have, mm. have been available to me, actually going back to it and pushing on with it this time, it felt like, at least for the first couple of, um, of, of big sections, that I was retreading something that I was familiar with, and that felt very comforting. It was very intriguing to me that my perception of the characters was very different this time around. I think you, you will probably remember me saying that my favourite character from the first time I played it was Vincent. <laughs> Do you still love Vincent? Mr. Emo to the Extremo. I do not. Um, I, I found his... Okay, his limit breaks are fun. My life is fun. nothing but pain. Yeah, his limit breaks are fun. But by and large, I was like, oh, Vincent, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know, mate. We know. It's hard. But come on. And, my and secret. Reason, no one must know my secret. Where are you going? My <laughs> secret. I sleep in a coffin and I'm a werewolf or something. That's a huge part of it is that my brain has now retuned him to be freaking Edward Cullen. <laughs> I mean, he's so much more stylish and goth than Edward Cullen. I mean, he is, but... But there is still that sort of, that, that twilight... I'm a psy vampire, per se. Per se, yeah. <laughs> he has to use the phrase per se, otherwise this is all for naught. Um, but it, it's... He's so teenagerish <laughs> that when you find out he's, like, really old, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. You're 112? <laughs> but... The first time I, I played like it, that. the first time I played it, I could not gel with Tifa and Barrett. Huh? I I just it, it didn't it didn't click. I I mean I get it. I know what part they play in the story, but I never wanted to spend more time around them than than was necessary. I very rarely played them in in my main party. Well, there's your first mistake. Well, indeed, this time they formed the core of of what went on, and for the. For the first section of the game, up until the moment, my base team was usually Cloud, Tifa and Eris. And after 
Eris's death, I very specifically respect Cloud as my main healer because, and this is nothing to do with anything that's presented in the story, having Eris's materia made him feel like she was still there in the same way that having her mother's materia had made Eris feel close to her, he was taking that forward. And that put a layer onto Cloud that's not even in the game. Mm. But it, it then sort of, and it does affect sort of some gameplay choices because it meant that I couldn't really use him as my cover and counter-attack character. Yeah. He's tanking up until that point. Exactly, You get yeah. him to use the cover materia and take the hits for other characters mm. and then strike back with massive damage. It's yeah. The loss of your main healer does something devastating to the group. Again, Super Eye Patch Wolf pointed that out. It is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's ways around it. There's other things that you can pick up that will help you to compensate for that. There's, a, in particular, the enemy skill um, material. If you want to be you... entirely practical, exclude Ares from your party altogether and just buff up someone else to be the main healer. The first walkthrough guide that I started working with said exactly that. That's you won't have Ares in your party shit. very long. Don't bother with her. I'm like, wow, you are missing the whole point, mate. Let me go and find a different one. <laughs> um, but having a walkthrough did enable me to make some, some intellectualised choices. Choose they... which waifu to take in the cable car. <laughs> but, but they fed into my experience of the emotional side of the game. Yeah. And that blend worked really well for me. But yeah, so so after you lose Eris, then it became for me... I, I kept Tifa around because Tifa absolutely had to be there because otherwise Cloud would have felt completely alone. And there's a, there's a couple of moments where she's gone to do something else and um, I ended up having to play with characters that I didn't really know very well. Well, Barrett's like, there's better for you. And it's, it's right, right here, <laughs> buddy. I think there's there got to was... be some art out there of those two yeah. hugging it out. <laughs> there's, there was one point where I think I ended up with Yuffie and Kate Sith, and it felt weird. I mean, it was it was kind of nice, and then I, I had this thing where I was like, right, Yuffie's got to go in the middle because she's little and we have to protect her. And, and so there's all these choices that I'm making that aren't anything to do with the actual gameplay. They're to do with the characters. Mm. Which means you are superimposing actual role-playing on a game that it's entirely optional to even think along those lines. Yes, yeah. But but again, things like giving that cover material that I mentioned, Barrett, even though at the point in which my team then became Cloud, Tifa and Barrett, which it then pretty much was for the rest of it, because to my mind, this is like the core of Avalanche. These guys have to work together because it means so much to them and the rest of the characters Corner Naki's in the core, they're going, oh, no one cares about I the did, dog, No, 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 I did bring him in more often than not. Whenever I had a choice to do a switch in, um, I, I did bring him in more often than I, than I hadn't done before. I think the first time round... Uh, Nanaki and Vincent were like, that was my team. This time, I felt bad leaving him out, so I did bring him in occasionally. But Barrett took the cover materia because, in my head, that's what he'd do. If he saw someone going after his friend, he'd leap in the way. And again, it's it's these little decisions that... I'm sure there was a, a, a way that I could have played the game that was more sensible in terms of how to be the biggest, toughest 
You mean mathematically working out the uh, path of least resistance. Absolutely. And the most profit. But the way that I... Which is very Shinra. Indeed. (laughs) But the way that I made those choices made more sense to me. And that's how I was able to keep pushing through. This, I think, is what puts me off with a game more often than not, is when I get to a point where I'm like, I am now having to make choices and do things that are very, very counter to how I operate as a person. And if you make it so that I have to do that, otherwise I cannot continue with the game, that's when my brain goes, we're done with this book now, and that's going back on the shelf. We had a discussion on the Discord the other day about uh, um, choice in games. I specifically brought up The Last of Us 2 and and said, would it be possible to play a certain part of the game to the point where Ellie has to go out on her revenge trip and then just put the controller down and turn off the PS4 and say, well, that's the end of the game because in my head, Ellie just does stay home and does stay for love because I don't want to be told that revenge is a hollow experience. He who seeks revenge first dig two graves. I know. And I was saying that's obviously making it more of a role-playing game because you're making Ellie's decision for her. I don't really want to get into, I really don't want to get into a whole thing about The Last of Us. That is for Last of Us fans. Uh, But it then made me think how many other games you could effectively consider just like stepping away to be an alternate ending. So I was playing uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, the last game in the Call of Duty series I ever played because it was during the 2000s and they were really trying to normalize torture as a means of progress uh, to uh, assist the military. And I was given like a big shard of glass and there was a guy in a chair and I was told, cut him, cut him until he tells us what's gonna happen. And I just sat there and there was no one took it out of my hands and said, look, I'll do it for you. In which case, I'd still have been abiding by it happening. And eventually, I just turned off the 360 and went, well, that was your lot, Call of Duty. Did you enjoy it? Mm. Because no. Simply put, no. And that's ultimately how I play. I, I was straight up repelled by video games for many years when... And it was around about the time that I started doing Digital Gonzo. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously at that point we had a a kid to look after, so I couldn't really devote myself to games as much. But there was a certain level of being closed off from the horrendous violent acts Mm -hmm. that that you were effectively being asked to do. And there were occasional games like Spec Ops The Line that were like, aren't you disgusted with yourself for the atrocious acts you've done in the name of well I'm just doing my job and it's fun and it's a video game and I was like yeah spec ops the line I am peace out and it had a very long-term effect to the point where I was kind of out of the market as AAA games morphed into a destiny model Mm -hmm. and became just like big arena shooters looter shooter everyone's got to take part and you've got to get a subscription and a battle pass and all of that fucking loot box shit I had no interest and I also avoided games as they were coming out because they were getting more and more expensive and then there were like the silver edition, the gold edition, the platinum edition. This one comes with an entire truck. It's very cheaply made, but it'll cost you 10 grand. Uh, but it's so exclusive. It's the Super Addict Warrior version of Assassin's Creed the 700th. I think what really kind of clinched me back into games was the Switch and how much you took to it and how much Will took to it after really enjoying their DS and then 3DS. Mm. 
and then getting into Switch sales and just picking up all these indies which were being produced and just indie games got me back into video gaming and thence from there retro gaming and now while I'm still not on board at all for things like Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League I love video games again in a different way Mm, yeah also not having to look after Willow 24-7 because Willow can look after Willow really frees up our time and space and you playing that is on very true. you playing on a handheld on the couch next to me playing on a different handheld on the couch while Will plays on a different handheld on the couch it feels and we very compact. and we all eat chocolate it's a uh, Swedish thing called Jollabokaflod only they do it with books and we do it with games Jollagamaflod uh, it's cozy and family bonding and it's it seems antisocial but it's actually the opposite yeah. so yeah handheld seemed to be the way of things and, and, and the Switch changed everything. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thanks to the Switch, you got... I played Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII and managed to finish. What were the yes. quality of life upgrades that actually so, do change the game? Yeah, okay, so there are... Bollocks. I suppose the, the sheer length of this game was something that was always a little bit daunting in the past. And the fact that what really breeze blocked me the first time I tried to play it was and this was back in the days before walkthroughs and guides and things were really particularly accessible you you could get official guides to the game and it would tell you little hints about you know don't miss this power up and and that kind of thing but not every single thing some of them I I remember the Final Fantasy 9 guide was like and we're going to put here a little code to go to the website and find out some tips on this section. I'm like, you are a player's guide. Don't make me go online to find the online element of the player's guide. Worth noting, by the way, that at this point in our lives, the online access, and I'm air quoting because it was only very, very loosely online access, was a dial-up connection and a fucking Dreamcast with a console controller that you had to scroll through letters to put in a web address. Not happening. <laughs> we only had, uh, we lived in three different uh, houses when we were uh, living in York. And of the three, only the middle one that we only stayed in for six months actually had internet access. The other two didn't. Mm-hmm. What this Switch version presented me with that enabled me to get past a lot of the, those mental blocks, whether or not I I actually was going to use them. There is an option to triple speed the game. You can toggle this on and off. You don't have to choose it and then you're stuck with it. Um, And it enabled me to, when I was like, right, my levels are low, I need to grind, whack triple speed on, go out onto the map, burn through some battles in double quick time when they're easy ones and it's just slash 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 you don't need to be making a great deal of decisions dead straightforward and that really helped with that that also helped with some areas of the game where you're doing very long running sections or uh, having to get through wide open spaces or Um, something's happening that would otherwise be interminably slow. Now, obviously, I didn't have this on when there's significant narrative sections going on. Um, Or Fort Condor, because you wouldn't have time to adjust. Indeed. Very occasionally, I would use it for extensive conversation sections just because it meant the text speeded up a bit. Right. 
but that was very few and far between. Primarily, it was running and combat. Yeah. Grinding became less of a grind. Absolutely. I could have bypassed all of that altogether. There is another toggle on and off option, which makes you a super badass. I don't think it's toggleable off. Yeah, it is. It is? You just put it on. And then you put it off again. Right. So you could technically have tried to beat the green and red weapons with the super badass on. Yep. Okay. Yep. But by the time, because I had utilised the speed up thing mm. to do my grinding, by the time it got to the stage where I actually would probably have needed that, everybody was already pretty much up to as, as high as I needed them to go anyway. Um, but it does mean that that was another option that would have opened up another section of the game for me that otherwise I would have would have broken off on. The reason, uh, just to go back to the walkthrough issue, um, I didn't know when I first played it that the weapons were optional. I got to the point where I, there was no way I was going to beat this weapon and I thought, well, that's it. If I can't get past this, you got I can't up to play a the weapon? rest of the game. I got up to a weapon. You could just have asked me and I'd have said, they're optional. Well, I don't know why that didn't happen, but that's what made me stop playing. Good gravy! Maybe we just weren't as, as, as communicative back in those days. Well, obviously we're more communicative with than we are now, but I feel like you quitting Final Fantasy 7, I'd go, for what reason? I can't beat the red weapon. You don't have to. But I don't I don't think we ever really had that conversation. I just didn't pick it back up again. Right. And then we, oh, we didn't yeah. discuss it. There are the, the list of games that I just I was like, I'll get back to it someday. Yeah. And never yeah. did. And, and then you don't. Is yeah. the size it of happens. a grand fucking candy. It happens. And this was just one of them. The other, the other quality of life thing that uh, helps when moving across spaces mm -hmm. is turning off Random enemy encounters. encounters. Yes, so you can turn that off, and that means that if you want to get from A to B on the map without having this constant battle interruption, you just bash that off, and off you go, and it's done. And the to same me, that's thing... a selling point. Like, is if I find yeah. out there's four versions of this game, like there's the original on the snares, there's a GBA one, there's a iOS one, and then there's a Switch one, and the iOS and Switch ones, you can turn off random encounters, I'm like, well, it's gonna be one of those two. Because, mm. like, not that I don't want encounters, obviously I, I love the combat when it's done really well, mm -hmm. and the Materia system is one of the best combat systems I've ever encountered. Correct. Thinking about it, I can't think of many other JRPGs that actually come even close. Yeah. But, there are times when I just want to get through an area without just like, especially when you've lost your way and you're like, where do I, would you leave me alone? Where do I go? Yes, indeed. And there is material that you can use to increase your encounter rate. That's not the same thing at That's all. It's not the same thing at all. Um, and I, I, I don't know, was there ever a material that you could put on that would reduce your enemy encounter rate? Maybe. But this, the fact that you can just toggle it on, toggle it off. Now, in theory, you could whack all three of those on and, and just, just walk burn through the, game. through the game, just engaging with the story side of things. I mean, if, if you got the on triple speed, you're not going to engage that much with the story either. Probably not. But then again, but, there are people who listen to New Century with 1.5 or double speed. I'm like, I've spent ages getting every single sound in that soundscape to be in exactly the right place. This is like listening to Mozart 
at triple speed. I don't think you barbarians. I don't think it's so much the new. I ain't got time. As as school of movies, and that I understand. Most of the podcasts that I listen to, I do listen to on one and a half speed. Well, basically, that's because, because podcasters waffle on. Well, what that effectively does is I don't it know brings, what that means. I've we've never done that it before. Brings the conversation speed up to how fast my brain is going. It stops my brain from wandering off. Right. So that is actually quite helpful, especially if the podcaster is a trained professional who speaks in a very measured, careful way so that everybody can hear what they're saying. School of Movies moves as fast as my brain does. All of those little cutaways in sound, that's what my brain's doing. Yeah, personally, I don't tend to need to listen to School of Movies at a faster pace, but I do understand that some people might. Either way. And that's fine. So basically, those things made it, and I believe those are all present in Final Fantasy IX, which we also own, and I will even go back and get Final Fantasy VIII as soon as it goes back on sale. Mm to give that one a go. There are other customizable aspects that I didn't use that much. Um, I don't know how many of these were available in the original game, but for example, you can change the battle style mm-hmm. to, from default, which is everybody takes turns, but it's continuous, mm. or active. All right, no, that was a present in the original game. Was, active right, battle okay. time, the ATB bars actually came in not too far before this. Right. Previously on the Final Fantasies, it was everyone waits patiently yeah. for their turn. And wait is an option yeah. that you can switch on. And I actually found I preferred that one because right. especially once I'd started using Materia to its best effect, I needed a few seconds mm. to figure out what was coming next. The actual mechanics of Materia are that you put an ability into a slot in your weapon mm. and the more you have that ability, not necessarily the more you use it, but the more you have it on you when you do fights the experience gets fed into that material, effectively giving you a percentage affinity with fire, ice, and lightning. The, also, the material itself gets stronger. Yeah. So, so you, you go from one star all to five star all. Exactly. And that will sometimes it will give you additional benefits. Sometimes it will let you use those things more times. Fire becomes fire, fire it, it multiplies. It, it does. produces another little baby. I was just going to say, once you get to a certain point, it pops off another little one for you. It's like freaking Pokemon. It's brilliant. Um, Don't even get me started on. <laughs> Chocobo breeding. <laughs> I told you it was a time thing. That briefly, and then went. Nah. <laughs> like, this now, is not happening. It's gross as well. Now kiss. <laughs> yeah, there is that. When you the second time around, when I said, "Oh, this is taking ages," so I'm I'm going to stop doing that now. And that wasn't the chocobo breeding. That was something else. I was trying to get everybody's limit breaks, and Cloud's limit break you cannot get unless you win battles in the battle arena at the gold saucer yeah and you had said to me don't you don't need to bother with that if you if your levels are up high enough you don't necessarily need that and it turns out that end battle that you use omni slash for mm-hmm. they give it to you for that battle regardless because you just, have it or not it looks bad because it's part of the, the yeah it's part of the animation um so it didn't matter but the reason at that stage, because I looked at it and I was like, Alex had already said, you don't need this. Why did I feel compelled to go back and at least have one more try? And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave. I was at the edge of the last chapter and I wanted to keep playing. And this is the documented connection that we have to RPG characters in really good stories. And it's the same with movie series like Lord of the Rings and book series like Lord of the Rings and and Harry Potter and sorry to say, but yeah, Harry Potter meant so much to so many people and it wouldn't hurt to abandon it if it didn't. If it yeah. didn't. You think people are wrecking their hearts over what's his name, Scott Card? No. Awesome. 
The Orson Scott Card. Yes, yeah. the one. He was the pig from the Garfield. Yes. Thing. Um, but the the presence of fan fiction and fan videos. It's what we want to happen in the margins of the adventure we've just been told. It is, and it feeds into what you were saying before about you don't want a game to proceed in this way or you don't want a film to end with this outcome, then you can write your own. And I say Stand this, up in the middle end of Old Yeller and go, and then he got a shot and he was, he fine. was fine. He didn't get shot, he got a shot from yep. a very helpful veterinarian. Rabies vaccine and we're leaving, come yep. on. And he has babies. Yes, he does. Um, but, but that... <laughs> I, and, and I say this as somebody who has been writing fanfic hmm. since I was five because I wanted stories to be different and I wanted more material from the, the characters that I loved and that I was engaging Talk with. about now kiss. Mm. <laughs> but that, that mine shows us the very expanse of it, the scope of it, tells us how much we want more of these worlds that we're getting given. The game is about grief. And a lot of other RPGs kind of follow a similar pattern. Uh, a, a, a survey was conducted that asked people on Twitter how they felt about a character's death in Game of Thrones. And the early responses immediately kind of fell into the anger and denial side of the Kubler-Ross uh, five and by a week or so later it was start the the responses were starting to air towards acceptance Sakaguchi's mother died around about the time this was in development and while there were people on the project who wanted to kill everyone to him, it was important that Aeris's death mean something and be significant and that she not come back. And as soon as the game came out, rumours abound. You can get her back. There's, there's got to be a way. I know the code to get Aeris back. You've got to go to a certain cave. I'll bring it in tomorrow. <laughs> but, oh no, my mum won't let me. Uh, and just this, this is the denial part of the, the Kubler-Ross. The, the lack of ability, because like, you're sense of grief and mourning that then spreads throughout the entire game. The whole thing takes on a dark tone because your source of healing and this gentle, kind person has just gone. And I was watching the death scene again and I was reminded of a bit that I don't remember all that well. But when you first get to Eris, in the Forgotten Capital, as Cloud, what happens? You press a button, and Cloud's standing above her, and the button press gets Cloud to take out his buster sword and put it to one side, and then up, and then you press, no, 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 I don't want to be doing that, and then he raises it to one side again, oh, yeah. and then up. Yeah. And it's like, you're about to kill Eris. And then she looks up at you in the or, or at Cloud in the uh, cutscene as it goes, and smiles, and Sephiroth flies down from the ceiling, sword down, and stabs her. I've never heard anyone talk about this particular scene, but the grief is so great when you see that Ares is now dead, and you then have to fight a fucking Genova spawn with Ares's music playing, 
and before you can even lay her body to rest. And it's just so gutting that most people don't remember, why did I almost kill Eris? And the look on her face, I would like to interpret now as... Cloud was about to play a part in what had to happen to save everyone. And the smile Eris gives is that he doesn't have to in the end. That Sephiroth's gonna just come down, do his shitty Sephiroth thing, and then Cloud has someone that he can blame this on. Yeah. It's almost like the actual, the act of holy in order to summon enough energy to defend the planet from a meteorite, from a meteor materia that is effectively death that Sephiroth has summoned down from the heavens in his, his wrath and his rage to destroy the world that he hates for what it did to him. It's not as simple as, if we all just put our hands together and pray, then it'll be okay. Eris accepts at this point that she has a part to play and that that part will mean her death. Yeah. The, the prayer, I mean, it, it does seem pretty clear that Eris manages to make the prayer to bring forth Holy before she is killed. But yes, if that prayer requires a sacrifice, then she likely is not new on some instinctive level, even if not intellectually, that that is what was going to happen. You could corroborate that by, and this is this is fan theory stuff, but at the very beginning, the, it's sort of that space and light particles, and then it fades into Eris's face as she's looking at Mako energy emanating from a grate and a drain, and she's, kneeling as though praying and then she gets up and carries on out into Midgar at the end of the game one of the last shots before the big flash forward into the far future is Eris's face as she assists Holy in saving everyone which would also suggest that she knew this was going to happen having seen maybe not even consciously but on some level knew that she had a part to play in this and that that needed to occur. But again, Sakaguchi's decision was that she would stay dead and that that would be meaningful, but it goes back to The Last Jedi and no one's ever really gone. Because even though Eris is dead, she lives on in multiple different ways. Yeah. She she has, and this is part of her belief system anyway, as, as one of the Cetra, that death simply means passing from the physical state to the life stream, which is the lifeblood of the planet that flows in and through everything. It, if you want to carry on with the, the uh, Star Wars comparison, it's the force. Mm -hmm. It's the, the energy that eventually comes to the defense of the Earth and counteracts Meteor, but it does it in a very gentle way. I mean, it's it's. It's not like a sudden violent. It fist. doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't smack into Meteor and make it blow up. It it's a safety encompasses net. it and absorbs it, mm. almost like an immune system or an embrace. Yeah, uh, and in, and reincorporates that energy back into the planet, possibly then healing, healing it and replenishing that energy that Shinra has been stripping it of. And that's what gets you that final epilogue where 
uh, Nanaki and his cubs come over the cliff and you're looking down on a Midgar. I'm going to guess that those are great, 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 great grand cubs. And even though they live for an incredibly well, long time, possibly, he's yeah. like, come with me, kids. I'm going <laughs> to go back to Midgar to meet Vincent. You know, he's so much fun, don't you? <laughs> but he And then they get onto the back of a garbage truck and it plays Mama Pajama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, dog blood. <laughs> Don't understand any of that. That's the world of Oh, of course it is, yeah. Um, but then he looks down on a Midgar that the Earth has started to reclaim. You can see the shape of the, the, the pizza. All the greenery still has there, been but enveloping yeah. it. And, and that, again, that was an element that I missed because I never finished it. And now I have that in sequence with everything else and the interactive elements and the character elements and all of these shreds that I brought that weren't in the original game design, but the interaction of game with player creates something that doesn't exist without either of those connections. The player doesn't have these thoughts in their head already, and the game doesn't have these interpretations built into its DNA, but you put them together and you get something entirely unique. And in 1997, the only people you could talk to about it were work colleagues and kids in the playground. You're like, what did you think of the ending? And they went, what? Frankly, <laughs> <sighs> even now, I mentioned at work the other day that I was playing Final Fantasy VII and one person in the room knew what I was talking about and I was quite gratified about that. Nice. Uh, I'm just going to go back to that Blade Runner aesthetic that I mentioned. It is only really Midgar and a couple of other places where Shinra has been spreading out to make a very industrialized area of the Earth. There are so many quiet, calm little towns. One of them is literally called Calm. calm. Yes. <laughs> and they go out of their way to make you think, it's not just this. It's not just the city in seven across the entire planet. Absolutely. This is worth saving. These people don't actually all want to strip mine the planet. Yeah. They just want to get on and carry on living. But those places are under threat and you can see the tentacles of Shinra yeah. in these old-fashioned little villages where this reactor's been built and that rocket's been wrecked and yeah. that's this area's had all of its energy drained out of it it is a cautionary tale when it comes down to it that this is something that we are moving towards if you don't want it to happen you are going to have to do something yeah uh, we can now talk about the uh, various characters in the game. That, that uh, Most of what I talked about with Maya regarding Final Fantasy VI was predicated upon the characters. Mm. But in this, I've in that scenario, I had just finished the game. In this, I've had 26 years to percolate on the thing. We barely mentioned Sephiroth. He is... He was up against Kefka in this, who is the worst slash best villain in the Final Fantasy series and why it would be Sephiroth or Kefka. And they're both fascinating and pitiable and malevolent and share a similar kind of nihilism, but it's almost like Sephiroth believes in something and is more fanatical about it. That he believes that there's some kind of purification to be had from the destruction. Again, he's playing his part. Yes, he is. And what, one of the things I find fascinating about Sephiroth is that he is presented as the big bad, mm. that he is the dominating god that will pull all the strings in this game. No, no. 
half the decisions he makes are based on lies, are based on someone controlling him. Mm. He is not the thing at the end of all things. He wants to be, but that is a reaction to the fact that he has been lied to and manipulated and told this is your parentage. Oh wait, no, this is your parentage. Oh wait, no, this is your parentage. And then we find out, which I don't think he ever does, that the truth of his parentage is something completely different again. Is he just Hojo's son? He's Hojo's son yeah. and his mother was Lucretia. Yeah. There is, there Originally are... he and Eris were actually going to be brother and sister. Yeah. There are. He's he's trying to. Uh, Hojo is trying to recreate mm. the potentiality of an ancient child. Yeah. Special blood in a scientific and spiritual. It is sense, special blood, though. He's Eris's brother. But, but that's the thing. Hojo is fixated on special blood, and Absolutely. Hojo is wrong. Absolutely, yeah. So Lucretia is his mother. Hojo is his father. But there are Genova cells involved. Yeah. But he was not grown in a tank like the the clone. Soldiers. So when he finds out about all of this and strikes out, you got that really iconic standing in the flames, turning around and walking away, suggesting I can destroy whatever I want. Yeah. Destruction, as I've said in New Century, is the expression of powerlessness. Absolutely. And if you strip away someone's identity, purposefully, coldly, and with no regard to what that identity meant to them, you take a very, very big risk because then they really do have nothing else to lose. Kefka put in a room with Sephiroth would be like, you have nothing, nothing to do with all your strength. It's And then Sephiroth would cut him in half? No, they just talked about for ages about how we live in a society. Oh, I see. Right, <laughs> yes, okay. But, uh, yeah, no. I'm going to take a pattern here. <laughs> as the, like, Sephiroth hurts and harms and stomps through the land, uh, like, leaving corpses in his wake, and then goes into hibernation so he can cause the biggest hurt possible. Mm. And it's ultimately up to these, uh, the, the crew of Avalanche to pursue him doggedly, find him wherever he is, and stop him. It's, yeah. he's a simple, dark, big bad with sad, tragic, and ultimately kind of human frailties. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and he, this this idea of him and Eris being sort of two sides of the same coin, he does the same thing that she does, which is to give up his physical self in order to be able to achieve something much bigger than that. Now, it's been a long while since I handled Cloud. Again, uh, since outside of Midgar, he barely says or does anything. A little bit more in the uh, remake. But going back to the whole playing the part thing and dealing with uh, grief, and again, I'm only going to lightly touch upon this and not go back to the subject for many years after which we will actually know the answer to this one. They have the opportunity now with what they're doing with the remake to actually skew into a different timeline where that death does not happen. And I'm wondering which is the healthier angle on this one. Is it healthier to go, that death didn't happen, oh actually let's go back to it because it's better this way, or that death did happen because it's better this way, or that death didn't happen and we can do whatever we want and build whatever we want from a world where we don't have to accept death, I'm sure that's not going to be. I really hope not. Personally, for me, the, the mentality of victory is when no one dies and anything less than that is a defeat 
is not a healthy approach. Mm. The, the the in the in the way the original game plays out. Neither, by the way, is the ends justify the means. What Poe Dameron was attempting in uh, uh, the Last Jedi and had to be rudely awakened by Holdo. Mm, yeah, the it, it's worth noting that because of the nature of how a game like this has to be structured, you cannot lose and see Meteor hit the Earth and everything explode. If you lose while you're playing this game, you lose a battle. You lose a small battle, your party wipes, and then you go back, or you or you don't. Or you choose, right, that's it, that's where my game finished. My party died, I'm not going back to it. <laughs> Killed that's... by a giant house. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that On chapter. her sister. I remember um, that there was a little... Uh, Add slip inside the uh, Final Fantasy VII case that was advertising PlayStation One memory card, and it said, "Try completing Final Fantasy VII without it." And I was like, "Please don't challenge people, because <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll do it. They'll try. <laughs> they'll do it. It's unhealthy. It's not. It's physically possible to do that when you get to the end of disc one. It just allows you to to eject without having to reset, and mm. you just proceed onwards. Yeah. And like likewise with disc two. But I feel like. If you played it straight for even 40 hours mm. back in those days, that would have been about the uh, the time, your PlayStation 1 would just die and overheat. Yeah. Unless you had, like, it, it would have to be packed in ice to actually <laughs> keep that going. And don't do that, that it'll get Don't do that either. No. Also, it's um, bad for you. <laughs> but my point being that you, you don't, you can't get to the point where Meteor is about to hit and then you lose. But... The idea that the the negative endpoint that you're trying to avoid is a large-scale destruction that goes way beyond the death of individuals. And in actual fact, the way that death is framed is, in particular for Eris and her, her mother and, and their people, death is such a natural part of the flow of things that to prevent it happening, that's actually the unhealthy part. Because how can the life stream continue to be replenished if people don't die? Where is all that energy cycle going to come from? And the concept of the promised land that they keep coming back to, that Shinra misunderstands, that Sephiroth misunderstands, that Ares is the only person who really seems to get, and even she never talks about it explicitly, the idea that, that it's, it's a metaphorical place and that to go there is to reach the end of your material life and find the source of peace that is beyond that. And that that is a desirable outcome, not something that you would work really hard to try and avoid. And if they reframe the remake and decide that we're going to give you what you wanted, Eris doesn't die, to my mind. Oh, there are plenty of essays out there already where they've ruined it! They've ruined Final Fantasy VII! But to my mind, what you're doing then is preventing Eris from having her happy ending. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see. That we, that's not what we're here for, but, but it does tie into our take home from the game, yeah. and it will be a heavy debate moving forwards. Indeed. I mean, quite apart from anything else, Eris's death is the inspiration that keeps the team going through some really nasty, horrible shit. Cloud himself goes through some psychological trauma and torment and being 
pulled mentally apart and put back together again and it is his connection to the life stream through Eris that enables him to come back into something like himself and rebuild himself. I thought when he falls into the glowing earth that that would be a healing process for him, but it's referred to as Mako poisoning and he's uh, confined to a wheelchair. During the flashbacks that take place uh, just after you leave Midgar, uh, where it goes back to Cloud and uh, Tifa's hometown, a story plays out wherein Sephiroth visited with Cloud before, uh, finds the remains of Genova, his mother, and goes ballistic, burns the town. In the original flashback, Cloud comes across uh, Tifa having been thrown down the stairs, even though she was trying to defend the town uh, vainly against Sephiroth, runs up the stairs and manages to wallop Sephiroth to uh, chase him away. Yeah, I think he pushes him over a railing That's or the one, yeah. And therefore, thus solving the problem forever. But when we revisit that flashback, things change and it turns out that the guy who Cloud was remembering doing that is a chap named Zack who looks like Cloud but has black hair and was actually the person in the more privileged soldier position while Cloud was a lowly foot soldier, a grunt, a, a third class, just one of the dudes you've been killing since fight number one. Diddle -de diddle -de diddle -de diddle -de like a faceless stormtrooper, he was a nobody. Like a Finn, if you will. <laughs> he and Zack limped their way back to Midgo after that, and then Zack died, but pretty much gives Cloud his sword and says, you've got to carry out my legacy and just be me, <laughs> effectively, here. And he used to date Eris, so that there's a strange connection between Cloud and Eris where clearly Cloud reminds Eris of Zack, and... There's a lot of unspoken stuff going by where it would appear Ares picks up on conflicting information that Cloud's uh, coming up with. So my question for you, Sharon, is once you strip away who he's pretending to be on several levels, mm. who is Cloud? I personally think that remains something of a mystery. Because Especially as is... in the Advent Children movie, he does nothing but mope. Yes. But and Vincent is... turns up and goes, come on, man, that's my job. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Why am I here if you're already doing that? Um, in my original interpretation of the story, and I don't know, I still, having played the whole thing through again and only finished it yesterday, I am still a little unclear as to the reality of this. But my interpretation of it initially was that first there's the layer of, of the Zack that Cloud has built himself up to be. <laughs> Secondly, there's the layer of the Cloud who originally grew up with Tifa and, and was friends with her in their young childhood. So remind me, when they're sitting by the well, that was not Zack there. No. That was definitely Cloud. That and those was things did happen. A boy called Cloud who Tifa grew up with. Yeah. There is an implication that Cloud, our Cloud that we know, since we don't have an alternative name to call him, is a clone soldier, an attempt to make another Sephiroth that didn't quite work, using the memories of the Cloud that Tifa grew up with, who left their hometown to join Soldier. Now we're in Blade Runner territory So it again. is possible, it is possible, that Cloud is not even that Cloud that Tifa remembers. Mm. And she says as much... He's ephemeral, like that a cloud. She is, yeah, she is more than happy to go along with the idea that he is 
that cloud. Mm. She is also more than happy to go along with the memories that he puts forward that she knows were Zack. Or she may not have known Zack's name, but she knew that that was a different person. Or he could just have joined Shinra and not gotten particularly high in the ladder, and then they injected some Genova cells into him, which make him a bit more powerful. Yeah, also possible. So whether the cloud that we are playing in the game is physically the same cloud that Tifa grew up with, ultimately the conclusion that she reaches, and the conclusion that I reached, is that it doesn't actually matter. Who he is now, and what he is doing with his life now, is the important part. So it's your clones, robots, do they have souls argument again? Yes. Why are we even asking? Why this are we question? having this conversation still? still? Um, the the whole thing of the of him having what they call mako poisoning, and I think you're right. There is an element of healing involved in it, but it involves having his memories, his sense of self, stripped down to next to nothing, so that he can build it back up again. That that ultimately that is what makes him who he is. The choices that he makes, once he knows he is making a choice and not just doing something that he has been programmed to do or that his memories are impelling him to do or that he's doing because somebody else is expecting him to do it. It is the awareness that makes him a fully realised person. So this is another reason why the loss of Eris is so important because that's a thing that definitely happened to him. That's a thing that was huge and important and made a real difference to the choices that he makes and it definitely happened to this version of himself. And that kind of becomes like an anchor point for him. I know I'm me because I miss her. And it's that shared loss, I think, that unifies fans of this game. Like, you don't even really have to say that much. You just go, Final Fantasy VII, and if they played it, they go, oh. Barrett starts out as kind of a... uh, Japan has always uh, had a history of, of not being able to do angry black men very well. So it's smart to make him go beyond that just Mr. T that he begins with at the beginning and is like within one of the first scenes after you've done the whole reactor thing, he's got a little girl called Marlene, a little white girl called Marlene specifically that he's the adoptive father of. And he is clearly tender and sweet to her. And then as soon as someone is like, oh, Barrett, you're blah, 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 blah. And he just sort of smacks him across the room in kind of a, no, I'm not way like he's he's overcompensating wildly and as you find out the shit that happened and went down in his uh, where he grew up the it's a, it's another sad story how he lost his arm and he is emotionally vulnerable they very like they don't do in this game cool is tough and never being vulnerable yeah. ever this is this is the opposite of that like even the closest that comes to that is probably Vincent, mm. and even and you can with what's skip going him altogether in the whole you game. You can, but if you don't, and he's around, what ends up happening is the group is having conversations about how lonely as balls he is. Hold on, guys, I've got to go off and have an action PlayStation spin-off, mm. or I can do a Devil May Cry. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's worth pointing out Reno and the Turks. This was actually kind of a masterstroke because they are villains and antagonists, but you like them. Like they turn up and they, I mean, Reno in particular is a rude, arrogant Japanese teenage boy. Mm. He's got his shirt untucked, his collar's out like his that. His hair's all like this. His hair's like that. He's got this sort of like otaku thing going on, but like a cool otaku. Yeah. In fact, actually, those those kind of red foxy, almost like if, if he Dresses. could frost his tips, then he would. Mm. Um, it's a little bit Dragon Ball Z. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> He, he kind of evokes um, Chrono from Chrono Trigger. Mm, yes, yes, definitely. Same artist. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's got goggles, and basically he's the kind of person that your father would think was a bad egg and you shouldn't hang around with him, he'll teach you to have an attitude. Yes, and in any other game, he'd be the hero. And that's why he's pissed off. I don't know, I think he's a smart ass. I ultimately, I think playing Cloud and then uh, Squall Lionheart in Final Fantasy VIII in a row made me, as soon as I finally got to Zidane in Final Fantasy IX, I was like, oh, thank, thank God. God. Somebody with a sense of humor. He's fun, he's a trickster, <laughs> he's got a monkey tail and yeah. lacy cuffs. Yeah. Just, it's Ooh, so no. much more ostentatious. Reno is like Sid, but young. I suppose so. And, yeah, so they turn up and they're like, you know, we're the Turks. And Rude... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you grow a tail, man. As, as it turns out, Rude has a thing for Tifa. Not in, like, a really creepy stalkerish kind of way. In a kind of a, if you're in a fight, he'll never attack Tifa until she's the last person in the party. And then he gets asked by uh, uh, Reno uh, in, in a quiet moment, so uh, what, what, what's the deal going on there? And he uh, mutters, I have a thing for Tifa. And again, in the remake, he has the opportunity to fire helicopter gunship machine gun fire at them and deliberately moves the helicopter away. Hey, I'm not applauding him. <laughs> I'm not applauding him for not massacring no, 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 people. I know, I know. I'm saying it's sweet that he's like, oh, I must have slipped. Yeah. It's ultimately the Turks end up trying to help out in Advent Children anyway. They, they come clean on this thing and uh, there's also that slap fight between Tifa and Scarlet on the cannon. That is like women That's like, women weird. fighting with each yeah. other. Yeah. Can like, I get you a pool of mud ladies? The reason that it's weird is because we have seen both of these women fight mm. in a battle context. We know that is not how they fight. Tifa in particular punches hard. Yeah. Also, Scarlet could really have been more of an Emma Frost type, but she kind of takes a back seat to Reno yeah. most of the time. Yeah, she flashes too much leg. Mm. Uh, and there's and also that's not that. That's not me slut shaming. It's just like if you were going to present an an evil woman, she must flash a lot of leg. There's also Tzen. Now, I think I was confused when I first played it. Is Tzen Cat Sith? Yes. It's, uh, How? It's, okay. In There's the one bit I where planned. he like he has to sacrifice himself, but then he comes back and goes, "But I'm fine." Yeah. There was right. another cat Sif. Okay. So it's in the version I played. It's Zeng. T S E N G. That's it. Right. Okay. You you get little flashes of like a middle manager at Shinra. Mm. He's in charge of something. Oh, I just lied really about being a double. Be. Um, he's he's kind of he's just he's a total salaryman, in it for the money. Um, not particularly loyal to Shinra, but he ends up being asked to be a spy. Like, I'm assuming at this point it's like uh, industrial espionage mm. type stuff. And how... Her... Spy on the Rand Corporation for us. Yeah. We'll put you in the body We're going to put you in a Furby. <laughs> 
that's effectively what this is. Yeah. They give him a Furby that he can remote control, and the idea is that he will then be able to find out stuff. And um, when you meet him, you meet the Furby. And the Furby is presented as the character that you're meeting. The fact that it's a little cat riding on what looks like a big moogly type thing anyway. It's a Mog. Mog, sorry. Which is, by the way, the name of a Moogle yeah. in Final Fantasy VI, just to confuse things. So, right off the bat, you're assuming, well, one of these things must be alive. <laughs> um, but then it turns out that, in fact, the whole thing is a stuffed animal. Um, and that Zeng has been remote controlling it the whole time. This, and I, I'm, I'm talking about this like it's a it's a fully realised plot strand. No, this is in like two or three throwaway conversations. You could see why I'd get confused Absolutely. then after 23 and years of, was he a dude? Yeah, so there is a point where you have to, you're in a, a let's, effectively it's an Egyptian pyramid and you have to do a puzzle and the puzzle will make the pyramid shrink but the puzzle has to be done within the pyramid. And that's why so it that's when him. Exactly. So that's when he says, right, this body is effectively disposable. Mm. You all leave, I will do the puzzle, and then we'll it's have It's still a thing. sad moment, though. Like, it, it, it is. It, even if it really is. No, because he's just like, sort of, yeah, yeah, I've got to go do this thing. Yeah, but but fundamentally for me, and, and yes, you do have not long after where he goes, hey, I found another Furby in a cupboard, so here I am again. You don't lose two party members. No. Oh, did I spoil something? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been nice if instead of him coming back with another Kate Sith body, yeah. which is never really physically threatened same. again, it was just yeah, saying, having left Shinra, because that's that's the whole point. This whole use my stuffed toy body to use do this my thing. body to get what you need. It's it's not the sacrifice of the body that's important. It's the fact that at that stage, Seng up to this point has been a Shinra spy. Yeah. He has now decided to do something openly you knowing who he is to support you and be on your side and and there is still a developing sort of people some people trust him less than others and and that that whole characterization thing is still going forward but i do think it would have been nice if it had just been saying turns up and joins your party yeah. but there we go yeah uh also worth noting but his weapon is crap and he's useless to have in fights and i did not have him in my party much he lifts right out he does yeah Another character worth mentioning, even though he's only in it for a little bit, but really makes an impact, is Don Corneo, a disgusting, grotty pimp <sighs> who yes. uh, um, is like, oh, baby, let's, I need to get it on. Yeah. Somehow... This is Don crap. Tifa gets kidnapped. When you meet Ares, you see Tifa being taken away on a cart to a brothel, which precipitates... A lengthy, odd sequence, which back in its day was very weird, but thankfully with the remake, they went full Yakuza razzmatazz with to turn it into Cloud's big date night out as a lady. A drag act extraordinaire, Yes, but I mean, it's, it's not really a drag act. It's a deception. Mm. And you have to sneak in with Eris and break Tifa out and then somehow confront Dawn Corneo and there's this really great little moment when they all talk about smashing, pureeing and cutting off his balls. Mm. It's these little diversions that make the game more endearing and more bearable through the really sad parts because after you've, you know, uh, endured that whole uh, sad flashback as to what happened to uh, Tifa and Cloud's town, you're then trying to 
rescue a little girl from a beach and then perform CPR with a little lung-based breathing game where you've got to press the button in the right way. And then you've got to get a dolphin to bounce you up to the top of the Junnan Tower uh, in just the right way. And it's there's a, a snowboarding game and a motorbiking game and obviously the chocobo racing and they go out of their way to give you other little things to do. Some of them absolutely game crucial. You can't get past this bit unless you save this person. Fucking snowboarding section. The submarine section as well. I, I really remember that one because it felt like I can now explore the oceans and they're vast and lonely and it's got that strangely comforting piece of music as you go. All of these things help you to feel like the world is big and complex and silly and serious and filled with people who matter as opposed to just, we're opposing Shinra on general principle. Yes, they're kind of like the gaming equivalent of small talk. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't necessarily contribute to the, the main thrust of the thing that you're trying to achieve, but it enables a build-up of small connections that means that those people are more important to you when the big decisions have to be made. Mm. And there's a few more party members still left to discuss. There's Sid, who is gruff and swears all the time, and you find out ultimately that the uh, he, he always wanted to go into space, and he was mere seconds away from being able to achieve that in a rocket, but then had to abort at the last second to save the life of a scientist whom he quietly blames, but at the same time is still glad that he saved the life of. So there's this strange sense of life debt that she owes him. Yes, which seems to have amounted to her being his tease maid and secretary for 15 years. Yeah. And Sid isn't very nice, but he does give you access to the high wind there's a point in a lot of really good JRPGs where you've been trundling around the world slowly and occasionally you'll get into boats to go to different continents or different islands and in this case you also get in the tiny Bronco which should be able to fly but it gets shot a bit and so is kind of a seaplane that's like a boat that's not particularly ocean worthy and yes. just has to skirt around the shoreline. Skirt around the coast and find places yeah. where you can pull in. Yeah. Again, they, uh, Super Eyepatch Wolf pointed this out. Well, you get to a giant marsh where it's being patrolled by a giant snake that can just wipe your party. So you cannot get across the marsh on foot. You've got to get a chocobo, which uh, teaches you how to talk to the chocobo farmer, get find out about the whole greens thing, buy some greens, go out, use a chocobo lure, find the chocobo, give him chocobo greens, and if you're lucky, he'll stick around and you can ride him. Or if you've got a walkthrough that says, use this kind of green, it will keep him still for longer. Yeah. Usually the more expensive greens tend yes. to do that. But uh, then when you finally make your way across this unskippable, like, the snake will always catch you otherwise and will always kill you. When you finally get across the marsh on the chocobo, you find the snake on a big spike where Sephiroth has just killed it. This thing that could just wipe you out. He's just seemingly easily killed it. It's once again, you're following in his footsteps and seeing the carnage left behind that builds up this monstrous shadow that is dangerous to be following. But when you get to the airship, 
Much like with Flammy in uh, Secret of Mana, so I was leaning into this, and there's an airship in Final Fantasy VI as well, and I would warrant a whole bunch of others that a lot of you are thinking of. And there's the, there's the, uh, the, the flying time device in Chrono Trigger, which crosses time zones as well as uh, being able to cross the map, because in Chrono Trigger, it's a small map that exists at different time periods rather than a massive map, and you're going through time rather than space. But that sense of freedom and the, the high wind theme that plays in your ear is triumphant when you finally get to kind of unlock the world. And it really does feel when you're there that you can revisit all the places you went to before without all of the troubles, without all of the dangers, hop in, hop out. And you finally feel like you are familiar enough with the world to be able to cross it. And the idea of airships doing that absolutely sunk into my head. And I, th I think it, the, the first story I ever wrote, which eventually became uh, New Century, it, there was a, a flying galleon called the Storm, which was absolutely inspired by Final Fantasy. The, the, the Final Fantasy games that I played at the turn of the century fed into my work. And you can still see little hallmarks of them here and there. Thumbprints. Yeah. And the storm eventually became Steamheart. Then there's Yuffie, who kind of makes you feel about materia that it's stuff. And when you said something about the material, it made me think this is energy, spiritual energy, condensed to a slow vibration until it becomes matter. A marble. A marble. A, a, a solid version of something spiritual. Mm. And Yuffie needs the materia to help her people of Wutai. And again, the, the world of, of Final Fantasy VII is astonishing because you've got Blade Runner over here, and then you've got an ancient Japanese pagoda over here. It's, it's so vibrant in, its, in, in, in the sense of painting other cultures. This is a thief that you meet outside Midgar and kind of convinced to help you, but eventually she runs off. If you go near Wutai, does she just run off with all your materia yes. and you're like, well, we can either try and carry on the game without materia, or we go get it back. And it's a whole sub-side pl mission plot thing. And these are all like the uh, uh, loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2, so it ties in with stuff you had to do in Final Fantasy VI as well. You kind of have to get Yuffie to square away with... Is it her father in the, in, the, yes. in that particular scenario? It's been a while. Uh, father or grandfather might be a grandfather. <laughs> and and yeah, she's a, she's a kid. She's kind of mouthy. And... She's got that kind of, like, you know, I can beat everyone. She, nothing ever seems to get Yuffie down. No, no. Even at the very end, she's still, yeah. like, enthusiastic about stuff. I think it is her father, actually, because um, it's grandfather at Cosmo mm. Canyon. Yeah, which, of course, brings us to Nanaki, uh, branded as a Red 13 by Shinra in their cruel experiments. He's, uh, and again... Nanaki sunk into my work and the cat books most definitely stem from elements of him and his existence and his life. He has this beautiful music. It's... It's my favourite track. Yeah. It's the Cosmo Canyon theme. It, it has Native American influences and uh, First Nation and it's played on... Is it the panpipes? Might even be Peruvian. There's or a sound that is evocative of it's that. It's evocative of that, yeah, yeah, definitely. 
what he has to square away is that he's always been ashamed of his father, who uh, was a coward in this legendary battle. And after time, his grandfather, who is a human being and no one ever questions it, um, who... Some of, the, some of the residents of Cosmo Canyon are cats, mm. some are humans. It is never quite clear, but they're all one and same people. Mm. It's never made clear whether they are shapeshifters and can go back and forth between the two, mm. or whether some of them just are cats and some just are human-shaped. But he's the one with the observatory that's yes. not yeah. dissimilar to Olga's from uh, Dark Crystal. Yes. Like this, again, the dun, 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 music. And the, the revelation is eventually when you go on this quest to try to resolve this for Nanaki that his father wasn't a coward at all and in fact gave his life defending the canyon. Everybody has always thought that what happened was the enemies descended on the canyon and uh, Nanaki's father ran away mm. because he never came home. But what actually happened was he was turned, he, he asked to be, for it to be made so that he could continue to defend the canyon and he was turned to stone. It's like a Greek myth where someone asks for safety and they get turned into a tree or something like that. And when, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it was decided that he should never be told this, but when Nanaki finds out, it changes his view of himself. And, and particularly because part of his, it's not really despair, he's quite, he's young, I think what, um, his grandfather says at one point is that in terms of how their people age, he's a teenager. Mm. Um, but like his, Hellboy then. Yeah. He just his, ages very slowly. His sense of identity has been distorted by his perception of his father and the fact that Shinra captured him and turned him into an experiment. Mm. And he has to sort of process both of these things to work out who he's going to be going forward. Similar to what Cloud has to do, really. And Vincent as well is, a, is the result of experiments. There's so many people who were snatched away from uh, their existence and meddled with mm, in this. Yeah. And, and so there is sort of this big overarching sense of who would we be if? Hmm. What if, if things had played out differently? If we'd been allowed to grow up with our actual parents? If we hadn't had ourselves tweaked on some... Hmm macro micro level. I hadn't lost my arm yeah exactly but fundamentally what the if game I'd been comes... able to go to space yeah but fundamentally what the game comes back around to at least for me is but who are you now yeah who might you have been that's fine that's there in the background it's always going to be a part of who you are but who are you now and what are you choosing to do now and I'm going to call it there, folks. Uh, I'm going to end on a lot of music, principally because it would have been unfair for me to play six, seven-minute tracks in the middle of this lengthy episode. It would have been testing the patience of people who haven't yet played it. However, as a treat for you, what I have is my three favorite renditions of One Winged Angel, the Final Fantasy VII Overworld theme and Eris's theme. These were all on the Final Fantasy S Generation CD, but these three they reorchestrated, and 
Even with the astonishing remake and the various piano collections and symphonic collections and live concerts that have happened since, and Advent Children, it's these three that I come back to. So we got a lot of Final Fantasy music to finish on, but even if you've never played the game, just listening to these will give you an idea of the pounding, pulsing, flowing journey that this whole thing is. And it makes absolute sense that everyone would look back on this uh, experience wistfully and with uh, a sense of always wanting to return to that place. But it's always different when we go back. So who knows what the next JRPG we completely and utterly rediscover will be. But it'll be fun finding out. In the meantime, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, school's Out. out. School of Movies and School of Everything Else are funded by Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us every month. You are the fuel in our furnace. You keep us going. And the folks in the top tier get a shout out every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo. Sarah Montgomery and Kat Esmond.